but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. It is the time of Bianca Andreescu, isn't it? Bibi. Um, I don't like the nickname. I know it's hers. I didn't even know that that was what she went by mm. mostly until... You thought everyone was talking about Netanyahu? No, I literally did not even see it or hear it. I was probably one of the last to know. And you're like, Brittany, like, don't. Oh my Let God. me be the last to know. <laughs> How come you always get to do the intro? I feel like the second act. No, you get to do it sometimes. Rarely. Mm -hmm. It's just that you're not always as prepared to get it done the, the, <laughs> on the first try. Fair enough. You're like Henry Fonda. One take. Did you know that was his reputation? I did not. Mm. That was Whitney's reputation, too. True. Very true. Do you know I learned today that Dolly Parton recorded Jolene and I Will Always Love You lies? She wrote... <laughs> Jolene mm. and I Will Always Love You in the same day. I saw that. Can you imagine? That is crazy. Like, this day in music history, how can one person contribute so much in one day? And then somebody responded to that tweet to say, well, I don't know if it was a well, but it was also an addition that Stevie Nicks wrote Rhiannon and Landslide in one day as well. For some reason, I felt that there was a Fleetwood Mac Stevie Nicks corollary to this Dolly Parton mm -hmm. story. I was like, well, yes, that's also great. Right. Can we just celebrate Dolly right now? I know. Like, we love Stevie Nicks, too. <laughs> Can't there be both? But I mean, Landslide and I Will Always Love You, massive hits for two separate artists. That is that's something true. in common. Yeah. Like, enormous hits. Anyway, back to the matter at hand. Anyway, we the North. She the North. She the North. We were just at a Raptors game last night in Toronto. They played the Knicks. Uh, I don't want to call it a game. It felt more like a scrimmage against a high school basketball team. It was horrendous. A massacre. And so you're a Knicks fan. Long-suffering. We, we actually took your younger brother as a Christmas present because you like the Knicks. Uh, I don't know if he does. but He, he likes the Raptors. He doesn't after last night. No, we, play, we play fantasy basketball oh. together. So, I mean, it was a, a, a pretty seamless gift, I thought. You know. Yes. My dude, Fred Van Vliet. Steady mm. Freddy, or as I like to call him, Drake Light, was playing point guard, started last night and scored, I don't know, like 13 points or something? He, was like, he had like 13 points, 8 assists. Mm -hmm. Very solid. Yes. This is probably boring Sorry. AF but for the listeners. The reason we bring up We the North is that Canadian, now star, Bianca Andreescu, won Indian Wells. Her first premier mandatory title. She's now 28-3 and three on the year. She also won the Newport Beach Challenger. Which is what, a 125? Uh, or like the 125 series? Yeah. So not technically a WTA title. So this would have been her first official WTA title, mm. I believe. Right. You may recall that Naomi Osaka won her first WTA title at Indian Wells last year. Mm -hmm. This recently has been the site of some shock victories. Bianca has been touted for, I don't know, maybe about a year as a truly upcoming star. I don't know. There were a bunch of folks I saw on Twitter haggling over how far back they knew she was right, going to be. Right. It. Or I saw her, you know, outside the locker room in Toronto. So, like, I knew her first. Mm -hmm. and I saw like, her hit an amazing forehand four years ago. And in that moment, I knew that everything <laughs> was just going to click. I encountered her on the subway back in um, 2005 um, I just predicted that she was going to be a superstar I knew her when she was she the middle instead of she the north <laughs> okay stop that, that, don't was a even, bit of a that don't even make sense she the central <laughs> anyway you know she is so young that the predictions about Bianca's future have been uh, short but rapturous she started this year unbelievably well Getting to the final in Auckland, right? And let me tell you, if you want to ensure success in your career, head down to Auckland to start your season and pray to face Venus Williams. Oh my God. Because that will set you up. Back in 2016, Kazakina beat her 
In 2017, Naomi Osaka beat her. And then this year, Bianca Andreescu beat Venus in Auckland. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's a stepping stone. Venus loves, loves Auckland. But she is kind of a queenmaker down there. Mm -hmm. You mentioned her stats on the year, her win-loss record. Outstanding stuff. What did you say, 28-3? and Right. That's not only winning a lot of matches, but playing a lot of matches. She's been playing damn near every week. And... When you get to this point of the season with that many matches under your belt, it's it's kind of because you don't really expect to have been winning so much. Oh, exactly. <laughs> you know, your right. schedule doesn't allow for these big-time results. Yeah. And so now that she's got all that coin in her bag, she says she can now afford to fly her parents out to tournaments mm-hmm. more. She can hopefully uh, scale back a little bit, well, when take you're... care of her body and adjust her schedule accordingly right when you're young you pack your schedule to earn money and points to get into the next big tournament right to try to get direct entry like you said she probably didn't expect to get to the finals or win a bunch of these tournaments she even played fed cup she won her two matches in singles and fed cup versus the netherlands you saw the fatigue start to catch up with her in the final against angie kerber and at several points sitting there watching it I think a lot of us were thinking, well, she has performed very well, but at this point, the veteran Kerber is going to exploit Bianca's exhaustion, her inexperience, and again and again, it did not happen. Bianca found another gear each time. So that was remarkable to watch for me, is the maturity of being able to think through that match, but also kind of slug and power and fight through the match. I think it was a combination of both. Tell us a bit about the quality of that final. Mm. The first set, Bianca played almost a flawless first set. You know, we talk a lot about players being clever and being great thinkers out there. But the commentators on our feed in particular were talking about how exhausting it can be to think on every point. right? And when you're playing someone like Kerber, she can chase down a lot. She's playing defense and returning very, very deep, like someone like Kim Kleisters. She's not only getting balls back, but she's getting them back very deeply and can unleash the forehand when she needs to. In this match, she wasn't aggressive enough, it turned out. But when you're playing someone like this with that much experience, you do really have to think out there constantly. So you saw a lot of skillful drop-shot-lob combinations from both players, but you got the sense that Bianca was using her brain on almost every single point which i imagine throughout a match you're looking for more automation if it's hot you could be out there for a long time you're playing a grinder are you are you really going to want to strategize within every single point like that has to be mentally and physically exhausting right but it was something that was working for her the thing that i've been most impressed with over the 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 last few months is just how complete her game is. I can't speak to necessarily the, the the strategy that she deploys within a match. But what I can tell you is I've seen her hit damn near every shot in the book. Right. She has power. She has spins. She can hit flat on both wings. She can hit with tremendous top spin on both wings. And then she can slice on both wings. Mm. And she's a big fan of the drop shot. Yes. And both players were using the drop shot quite a bit, and it wasn't always working for either of them. At certain points, both players were pretty far behind the baseline, and it was obvious that they could exploit the other's positioning. And it worked. But Bianca was relentless in in that area. Now, as the match went on, it really seemed like she's struggling with her physical conditioning. She played a grueling three-set match against Vitalina in the semifinals, and I got the sense that okay, this woman is 18 years old. I think she's just, she's tired. Like Kerber has got to gut this one out. You know, she's been in this situation hundreds of more times than Bianca. And you get late in the third set, Bianca starts cramping. She fails to serve it out. And it kind of felt like that's all she wrote, but it wasn't. Like she just kept coming back to the well. So I give all credit to Kerber as well, who fought her heart out, but just feel like wasn't aggressive enough in key moments. You heard on the the coaching changeover at one point where Andreescu says, I don't know what to do, I don't know what strategy to do, but I want this so bad. Mm. 
And those words can, you can probably draw a direct line from that to the finish line. Because that's what took her there. Right. It was the, the desire in those moments to overcome the fatigue, the physical deficiencies, depletedness at that point. Mm. And also the, the mental anguish right. <laughs> of being in this, this turmoil for the first time in her career. Yeah. She said, my feet are burning. You know where she's at in that moment. That if she really was out there thinking about how much her feet are burning, she would not have won that match. Like something else takes over and you switch to a new gear, I guess. I've never been an elite athlete. I don't know what that feels like. Uh, her coaching breaks were illuminating. I found her coach very encouraging, very level-headed, and allowed his player to just let off steam. And actually, Kerber's coach did the same thing. She was frustrated, but he sort of talked her down a few times. I liked uh, Andreescu's coach one time. You know, she said, Kerber's getting to everything. I don't know what to do. Like, she's returning with such pace and depth. And he says, well, credit to her. <laughs> but do what you need to do. You know, it was, it was very respectful. It was like, yes, that's what she does. She's an amazing player. But continue to play your game because you're being successful right now. So I like that when on-court coaching gives you a glimpse into a player's mindset during a match, I think it can be illuminating, it can be entertaining, which is what the WTA wants. You know, overall, I'm still not a huge fan. But that was a, a relatively positive display of it in that match. So kudos to Andreescu. She's up to, what, number 23 in the world? After starting the year, the year 150-something. Right. Uh, the future of Canadian tennis, it's not to be overstated at this point, is very bright. It is. I mean, we've been talking about Felix Auger quite a bit over the past few weeks. Denis Shapovalov is still out there. Still not 20 years old. <laughs> right. And uh, Milos made the semifinals in Indian Wells. Mm -hmm. If healthy, Milos is still a force on this ATP tour. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The issue in Canada is that the WTA is never on TV. And I understand that's an issue in the US as well. In Canada, the streaming service DAZN, I've just learned that this is how you say D-A-Z-N. Oh. DAZN. <laughs> you have to invent a few vowels in there. It's a streaming service. Did you just say Z? Z. You said Z? <laughs> D-A-Z-N. I have just scored... A monumental victory. It's just easier to say Z because when I say Z in Canada, people like to point it out. Mm. Anyway, this streaming service, apparently the rights holder of WTA tournaments in Canada, it's like a $20 per month subscription, but they offered this Andreescu Kerber final for free on Twitter and Facebook streaming. So I watched it on Facebook. At one point, Somebody tweeted a screenshot, and there were almost 500,000 people on the stream, which was geo-blocked for Canada. So, of course, factor in a lot of people are probably using VPN from a different country to watch this Canadian stream, but still, 500,000 people on this stream at any one point is massive for Canada in a country with, like, 30-something million people. Anecdotally, I can say that whenever somebody within the Canadian tennis setup is doing something notable, people come up to me and ask me, tell me about this. Are they any good? Da -da 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 -da. Right. And in the last week, I've got a lot of people coming up to me who normally don't care about tennis asking me about Andreescu. Canadian sporting personalities and the way Canadians consume sport, I think is a little bit different than in the States where, you know, the, the American identity is more fragmented by state, by sport. It's, I, mm. I don't feel like there's as much of a, an insular pride in supporting American athletes per se outside of the Olympics. Right, like it's more regional, yes. right? And uh, there are so many American mm. athletes and there's such a presence of the big four sports yeah. in all these different cities. Whereas Canada doesn't have as much of it. And so whenever an individual Canadian athlete does something notable, there's a lot of hype and talk about it. And mm -hmm. we saw that with Andreescu uh, building in 2019 to this point. And my hope now is that 
this could lead to more prominent coverage of, well, I say prominent, but any coverage of WTA tennis on a week-to-week basis on the major sporting networks in Canada. Right. And to be fair, TSN, which is our major sports network, does an amazing job during majors. Of You know, sometimes they have three different channels going on three different courts. The coverage seems to be a lot more expansive than it is on cable TV in the U.S. Mm. Of course, you have ESPN3, but just on, on broadcast television, you have all these different courts. Of course, you have live streaming online on a bunch of different courts. The, the issue is when the WTA is somewhere else. Even a huge tournament like Indian Wells, you can't see it on TV here. You see ATP matches, but not women's. And the, the contrast is stark because on a week-to-week basis, we could be talking about Rio, and we have coverage of it. Mo- like mm-hmm. tens of hours of coverage of 500s on TSN, which is a sports network, the major sports network in Canada. And they obviously have the rights to broadcast the ATP. And that's a decision that they made. On some level, nobody's blocking them from covering WTA tennis. It's a, it's a transactional thing. Right. You either choose to or not spend the money when it becomes available. Uh, uh, you, you make a you make a value judgment as to whether it's worth worth your investment. And so I hope that now Bianca Andreescu, if she's able to build on this, will force their hand. Yeah, one of the major cable networks will find it financially viable mm-hmm. to bid for WTA tennis. And so this is where having no foresight comes into play, right? I was tickled pink that you have one of, if not the brightest young star in women's tennis in your backyard in a market that is yearning to watch her. Right. That want to watch her and you can't show it. You've lost so much money. I'm sure TSN would have gladly welcomed that. They could have charged a lot more for advertising on that day, Mm -hmm. like during that broadcast. Now, we don't we have no idea what what figure the WTA was asking for in Canada. You hear people say, well, they were asking too much. TSN wasn't willing to pay it. I don't know if that's true. We don't have access to those negotiations, obviously. DAZN was willing to pay whatever the WTA mm-hmm. wanted. It's not like nobody's showing it. Somebody was willing to pay <laughs> right, something. Right. So so how did we get here? What else happened on the women's side in Indian Wells? We got Belinda Bencic in another semifinal. Another player who's had a resurgent winning 2019. Mm-hmm. Won another one of the big titles this year in Dubai. Naomi Osaka played her first tournament with her new coach, Jermaine Jenkins. And she looked good until she didn't. <laughs> These days, losing to Bencic is not a big thing. The way she lost to Bencic was obviously not super encouraging, but this is women's tennis in 2019. The number one player can have a bad loss, and it's not that big a deal. And uh, Osaka was not too bothered by it. She seemed to keep that loss in perspective. The thing, though, is that she does seem to, when it's not going her way or going well for her, it can go very badly, quickly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. Like a bad day can snowball into a very bad day. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, this stuff happens to everybody. We saw that in Brisbane right before the Australian Open. Things were going very badly. And mentally, they were going very badly. There were times in Australia where she wasn't looking great. She had to fight through matches that in a different tournament she may not have made it through. Shout out to Elena Svitolina because I have no idea how she made the semifinals. Mm. She just kept winning three-set match after three-set match, being down a set. Right, and she wasn't wasn't feeling well. But even just watching her game sometimes, I'm like, how is she winning? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's she must have read Brad Gilbert's book. Oh my god. <laughs> it's not always pretty, but it it doesn't have to be pretty. Period. She has some of the most chutzpah on the WTA. I will yeah, say that. I will give her that. She is out here trying every single match and getting the most out of her talent, I mm-hmm. think. Venus Williams made the quarterfinals of Indian Wells for the third year running. Wild to me. It is. <laughs> I think there's a lot to take away from Venus's performance here. I had a blast watching her matches, especially the match against Petra. They always bring something special against each other, Mm -hmm. as we know. They always go three sets. Their styles 
match up quite well. If you like that fabled big babe tennis, that's where it's at. Like Venus Petra, Venus Pliskova is reminiscent of some of those great Venus and Lindsay clashes in the early 2000s. At this point, it feels like we've seen the Petra-Venus matchup more than we have, because I still think it's only seven or eight times. Mm -hmm. And Petra still has the lead in the head-to-head, right? narrowly. But Venus has had some big wins in recent times as well. Yeah. She had that big uh, fourth-round or quarterfinal win at the U.S. Open. At 2017 U.S. Open. 2017, and then she now won in the second round of Indian Wells this year. And Venus won a lot of matches that you just don't know how she won them. <laughs> Again, definitely I, the covet of a match. We have, I don't know how she won that. We match. have talked about winning ugly with regard to Svitolina. Venus's game is obviously not ugly, but no. at certain points you're like, what the hell? You're just like, winning without your best, or just right. winning after being outplayed for most of the match. <laughs> She was uh, fairly toe-to-toe with Kvitov in the first set, losing at 6-4, and then she falls behind double break in the second mm. set and somehow pulls that out 7-5. That is just not a match that you expect Venus to win now. because she After the start that she had. Yeah, because she had such a poor 2018, to be frank. Like, reaching the quarterfinals of Indian Wells... She's still outside the top 40 because she had all these points to defend mm-hmm. here. She defended almost all mm-hmm. of them. Uh, the good news is that through the rest of the year, she will be gaining and gaining if she wins. Right? She still has some points to defend, but In it's Miami, not like defending 2017 points. Right. We told you last time that Venus spent three weeks in altitude training in Arizona, which was kind of eye-opening for us that Venus at 38 is, I mean, yeah, she's not playing tournaments during this time, but to, to make that kind of concerted push to train outside of your home environments, clearly looking for something specific mm-hmm. to add to your game. It, it shows that there's still incredible desire there. And that's what I took away most from this run in Indian Wells. Because when, when Venus got into that third set with Kvitova, down in the third set as well, and then coming back to break and then eventually break to win the match... And you saw her reaction. <laughs> you so rarely you, see that. You from do Venus. not get that kind of emotion. Typically, even if she beats somebody notable, it's it's somewhat muted. And then, when she's doing her twirling afterwards, she'll be all smiley and stuff. Yeah. When Kavitova's ball went long to give Venus the match, she ye- yelled out a big old yeah. <laughs> she screamed and. I do have to wonder if that was pointed, if she was frustrated, because Petra, we all love Petra, so don't don't come for me about this, because I love the woman, but at certain points, the squawking and the screaming is a lot. She's very vocal. And sometimes, I mean, we're, we're at a place in pro tennis where, like, cheering your opponent's errors is commonplace. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the old... Or even like a quiet fist pump or like, mm. yeah, you know, to like build yourself up to go forward. But it seems like Petra's animations on errors is just a little bit... Like on, you don't, you just don't scream on double faults. No. You know? So, as I said, I'm not trying to uh, to provoke the trolls here. I'm a Petra fan. I didn't like all of what I saw in that match. And I don't think Venus did either. In many ways... I mean, Venus makes a lot of noise, too. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But Venus is kind of a rule follower within the match. Like, she's she's as much of a purist as you're going to get, I think, in, in 2019. Except she does not apologize for let's. <laughs> she does not. She does not. And, and that was not were, new to this People were upset match. about that. Not new to this match. But it's something that she just doesn't do. She's not that kind of girl. So you think that, the, that her reaction at the end of the match wasn't just because it was an incredible comeback against one of the top players, one of the hottest players on the WTA Tour over the last, what, 18 months. Mm. Or, like, a a fruition of the hard work that she's put in. Mm. But you think it has something to do with feeling a little bit peeved over the in-match squawking, as you put it. Yeah, I I think she was just letting off a little steam. I don't want to harp on this. It's not a big deal. Like, the two obviously have a lot of respect for each other. 
you, you say that, but I'm not convinced that they like each other that much. They may not like each other. Which is fine. They're not friends. I mean, no. Venus is not friends with anyone. That's the thing. Right? Venus isn't friends with anybody no, like, at this point. Venus, like, Caroline, supposedly, is, like, besties with Serena. Same with Vika. Would Would Venus even, like, know them if she encountered them in the street? Would she say hello? That's that girl that comes over every now and then, and I see her in the locker room sometimes. That's Serena's little friend. What's her name again? (laughs) Well, well, the contrast there is that Serena, even at Indian Wells, she goes out of her way now to say that, you know, I have lots of friends on tour. Yeah, yeah. I am beloved. Which is a huge... Departure uh, for her. it's, It's been a journey. Whereas Venus's journey now is like, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) And you tweeted that from our body server called yes. the last fifteen years. That's been her. Well, this it's been her. That's her era. Ethos. She's in the I don't give a fuck era. But then she's has doubling lasted, down. It's lasted most of her career. Uh-huh. Um. Anyway, this is not RuPaul's best friend race. No. <laughs> <laughs> what I noticed from Venus this week is that she was experimenting. She was hitting some eighty mile an hour first serves, and people were like, "Oh God, she doesn't have a serve." Then she's got her knee taped up. What the hell? She's just like the walking wounded. Mm-hmm. And then she said in press, some of that was intentional. Well, she didn't say or that. Because she does not talk she about tactics. She answered in a way that could have you thinking <laughs> that that's what she said. That's true. But that may not be what she meant. And I'm not convinced that that's the case. Mm. I think it's strategic to preserve the elbow or whatever is going on with the arm. Because we saw that she's still able to crank it up when she needs to. Right. And maybe that's part of the strategy, but I can't imagine that Venus Williams, as a a distinct targeted strategy, would be out here serving 80-something miles an hour on first serves 70% of the time. Right. That just seems antithetical to everything that I know about her. Uh And the the actual visual evidence of of the arm compress, or whatever it is, the sleeve that she's wearing... It's something that we know she's dealt with in recent years. So, I I don't know. I think regardless of the injury situation, whether or not it was necessary, there was definitely some experimentation in the Venus game. without doubt. And especially against Kerber. We saw her... Mm -hmm. I mean, folks have been trying to say for years that Venus is... The impl- in the implication that she's dumb as a brick, or right? that, she's that she just doesn't incredibly stubborn as a player on the tennis court, mm-hmm. not in like real life, but on tennis court she plays dumb tennis because she doesn't use any strategy, she just you know bashes the ball and there's which, no adjusting, which we know is not true. It's not, but the big visual counteraction to that theory was in that Kerber match because <laughs> yes. we saw Venus do things that she hadn't done before. Mm. Serena Williams. Are you able to talk about this yet? Yeah, it's fine. It's Indian Wells. I'm not I'm not that concerned. I mean, they didn't play it for what 13 to 15 years. So what what difference does it make? Serena came off her first match where she played incredible tennis against Vika. Mhm. Mhm. That and was a really exciting match. Heading into the third round, she was scheduled to play Muguruza. She gets out to a 3-0 lead. And then loses six in a row to lose the first at 6-3 and then retires. Yeah, just it gets out to a fast start and Murutha found her game and, and that was that. Like Serena was clearly not all there. She said she was suffering from a viral illness, which I believe because half the draw was suffering from a viral illness. I don't know what the hell it was, norovirus or a flu or whatever. Sasha Zverev looked terrible. He was obviously ill. I feel like every tournament now, there's a whole bunch of illnesses going on. It may have to do with a lot of interlocker room sex. Oh my god. No. What else is there to explain it at this it's, point? We know the that... The constant travel <laughs> uh, lowers your immunity. Okay. There's hit, no surprise that these players are sick all the time. Hit me with the rationality. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying, we got a lot of coupling on, the, on both tours now. So sure, sure. Maybe it's just... Uh, a byproduct of mm. something else is all I'm saying. Can we talk about how bad, like historically bad, not historically in terms of like against precedent, but like remarkably terrible Serena's <laughs> volleys are? No, we can't. We absolutely will. <laughs> They're bad. I mean, what else is there to say? This is, I mean, this is not new. It's been happening for a while and to a certain extent Venus, but less so Venus. 
you know, we're just kind of taking it back that six, 14 time Grand Slam doubles champions and players who had just incredible volleys for the first halves of their career, mm. at least, now struggle so much to hit a decent volley at net. Yeah, I don't know what the hell Serena's doing. You saw some whoppers in the Wimbledon final last year against Kerber. Um, she's just not really getting down for the volleys, as far as I can see. I think perhaps one of the biggest telltale signs of a loss of a step or two is not being able to mm. get to net in time could be, to feel yeah. confident. Maybe right. it has to be a confidence issue because I don't know. You don't lose technique. I mean, like you yeah. know how to volley. But I feel like you can lose touch. Maybe sure. Like well, and like you said, if you're not in the position that you'd like to be in to hit that volley, yeah, you can lose confidence. Your technique suffers because you might be reaching. Yeah, actually, I think Serena was doing a lot less reaching in this tournament. Like against Azarenka, I think you said on the last episode mm-hmm. Her she was. was the best I've seen. You know, since like she came the back. lean. Every every amateur tennis player knows that lean when you haven't quite gotten to the ball mm-hmm. to hit a correct ground stroke. There was much less of that from her, of course, before the Muguruza match. Both Venus and Serena are in Miami currently. Venus was just at the Taste of Tennis Miami event, mm. and uh, so they're on schedule to play. Both of them with some kind of injury concerns coming into that tournament. Serena with the withdrawal, obviously, for the viral issue. And then Venus with uh, any number of reasons she could have not played that event. Pick pick a joint, and uh, it's an issue. But see, with Venus at this point, it's like, if I'm like able to walk, if you can wheel me onto the court, I can mm-hmm. get myself started. And I might, like, it might take me a set to like really be able to get into it, but right. I'm going to do it because, A... Um, I'm 38 years old. I love this. I want this is what I want to do. So if my body's not going to kill me by doing this, then I'm just gonna do it and deal with it. Mm-hmm. Because the thrill of snatching a Kavitova's wig <laughs> is just too good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what was happening on the men's side while all this was going on? We had another, I would say, shock winner of the title on the men's side. And one that's a long time coming. Mm-hmm. And one that I'm very pleased about. Dominic team has not always excelled on hard courts. Certainly at the Masters 100s. He has won titles. The Masters 100s? One thousand. <laughs> There's a thousand. Uh-huh. You yeah. multiply that by ten. Uh-huh. Um, the Masters 1 million events. <laughs> he has... Brought to you by PK <laughs> and the whatever oh group. My God. Those are yeah. coming soon. Now worth a million points. <laughs> Um, he has not always excelled at the hardcourt versions uh-huh. of those events, and there are a lot of them. He played well at the U.S. Open last year. He did. It's not that he can't. No, not at all. He doesn't always play the smartest tennis mm-hmm. on hardcourts. But I, I'm glad you brought that up because last year's U.S. Open, the match against Rafa. Well, the match against Kevin Anderson first. Yes. And then Rafa was really a turning point in my mind at how good he can be on the surface. Like there's, at this point, I feel like there's not a lot holding him back on hard mm-hmm. courts. Because when the ball is flying from his racket within the lines, those are bullets. Yeah. How he gets that much pace on his one-handed backhand is a mystery to me. <laughs> I don't quite understand it. It seems like he's been able to harness all his power now and couple that with the confidence of, of believing and knowing that he can win against some of these top guys on hard courts Mm. and this could be a big bust out moment for him it really could we're going into the clay season where he gains confidence he had just not a good first three months of this year at all he was dealing with this illness and you know when you hear about a tennis player dealing with a persistent illness you start to get really nervous mladeneviosis was that it that was a stop (laughs) But you remember Justine Enna had mono and it affected her for a long, long time. Like if, you know, she couldn't prepare the way she liked and it sapped her energy. So you get nervous when you hear stuff like that. He had only won three matches in this year at which, with some really bad losses. And then he gets here and he's a new man. He beats Milos in three sets in the semifinals, loses the first set to Federer in the final. And that's not a recipe for success. No, because you... 
and typically you just assume that Federer is going to hold serve. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to make any sort of headway in his service games. But there we had baby Dominic becoming grown-up Dominic in this <laughs> final because he was able to turn the tide in that match against Federer and uh, win his first ever Masters 1000. I liked his approach in the trophy ceremony where you know Federer did his thing, he made his speech, and then Dominic goes to the podium and immediately removes the mic from the stand and turns to face Federer. <laughs> that was a boss move. It was. Uh, because Bianca, you could see her inexperience in the ceremony because she kept turning away from the mic to look at Kerber to compliment her, but obviously she's not being picked up on the mic mm-hmm. anymore. Dominic just took it off the stand. I thought he was going to kick off his shoes, take off his earrings, you know, like give you, a, he was so give you a Fantasia moment. A Pat LaBelle moment. <laughs> the original. Uh, he was so calm and confident in mm-hmm. that moment. And he said, I don't know how I can congratulate you when you have 88 more titles than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cracking jokes. Right. The rap on, on Dominic to date in his career is that he's kind of bland or that he's very serious yeah you know but again maybe this is in keeping with the the coming of age of his game that he's also come of age as a man in his personal life Mm. as well roger seemed amused by the whole Mm -hmm. thing i'm sure he would have liked a 101st title and he would have liked another indian wells title but you know he it, it all seems like gravy for him at this point in a tournament that is so full of excess and wealth and uh, luxury. This is tailor-made for Federer. He's won it the most (laughs) along with Djokovic five times. And to come up short two years in a row in the final last year to Del Potro, and then again this year in a match he was heavily favored to win against Dominic Team being a set-up. It must not have been the nicest feeling for mm. him in that moment. But what are you saying about the Rolex spokesman, Roger Federer, about wealth and luxury and all that? I'm saying he's a fitting ambassador. <laughs> he is. But his game is very to the point. He gets out there and does it, you know? Okay. I, what's yeah. the relevance of that? Oh, I'm just saying there's very little drama with Roger's game. And some would say that that's the finesse and the beauty and oh, the, yeah. Yeah. the skill that goes along with all that you know, in the upper stratosphere. I just try to navigate a lot of fandoms here. And... But he said he was not disappointed. He came against an opponent who played extremely well. Mm. You know, and he, he himself, Federer, gave a good account of himself in that final. And while he lost, I think he's wise enough at this stage of his career, having been through his own peaks and valleys in the mid-2010s. To have, you know, a, a good grasp and outlook on on this whole situation. Mm. To put it into perspective. Right. Nadal was playing quite well through this tournament. He gets to Karen Hachanov and things start going wrong with the body. Wins a first set after being down a break early. Mm. Comes back, wins a first set. Things seem to be going very well. Right on course for Fedal, what, 39? He would have gone on to meet Federer in the semifinals. And then you notice in like the second game of the second set, he hits a couple of just uncharacteristic errors Mm. that you can kind of chalk up to not being in the right position. That's what struck me about it in the moment. Mm. And something seemed off in that game. And then on the changeover, we come to find out that he's called for the trainer. He's about to get up to go play the, the game. And then the trainer is called. That entire changeover, he was stretching the knee. We see images of him with his back up against the net, just trying to figure out what's going on. Mm. And at that point, you're like, well, a damn, well, damn, like this again, you know, the right knee. And also you're wondering how damaging is this going to be for him in the lead up to the French Open? Right. Because the timing of it is, it's never really, say for one year, never really affected his clay run, per se. Mm. He comes back out, eventually after having the treatment, gets taped, breaks almost right away. He has the set and a break lead, and you're like, oh, well, um, he still doesn't look great, but maybe he'll just be able to win the next three games or win three games quickly and get off the court. Eventually gets broken back, eventually winning another tiebreak, two tiebreak sets against Hachanov. Right. 
but the knee is wrapped. We know it is questionable that he's going to play against Federer. Pulls out the same day of his semifinal match against Federer. I mean, if you know Rafa, like, you know he wanted to play. He delayed it as much as possible to see if he could. He practiced that day and then chose to pull out. He's pulled out of Miami. We know, like, the hard courts are difficult for him. Uh, a few Rafa fans were circulating the, hey, it's not because of his style of play, it's because of this congenital bone issue in his foot that almost ended his career when he was a teenager back in 2004. He wears uh, orthotics. Uh, sometimes uh, it just catches up with him. He has to manage his hardcore schedule, especially very, very uh, vigilantly. So we will see when we get to Clay if this is a recurring issue. And it's an unpredictable injury. Like, it, it, it crops up and it doesn't always stick around. Clearly, because he looked to be in prime fighting form mm-hmm. against Hachanov. And after he was broken back in the second set and they were on serve, that's when Rafa actually started to look a little bit more certain in his footing. Right. For a while early in that second set, it looked very bad. And then it kind of seemed like he was like, well, I, I can, I get the sense and I kind of know that I'm not going to make it any worse in the second set. I can be a little bit more certain in my movement. Mm. The other big news on the men's side was Novak Djokovic in his first tournament since the Australian Open, correct? Yeah. He uh, loses to Philippe Kohlschreiber in straight sets. And this was after a whole bunch of hullabaloo surrounding Novak at this tournament with respect to the whole ATP leadership situation and his role as president of the Players' Council. He's been asked about it a lot, rightfully so, because this is a a big issue. He's been haunted by these Nadal Federer coffee clatches. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The secret meeting. Well, you know, I had Rafa over to the house yesterday for coffee. Yes. It's like, you know... Democracy, I guess, it's all that, but we're number one and number two in our own minds, and we we need to have a separate discussion about what's happening here. It was it was amusing. So this there was a specter of all that hanging over him heading into this match. Right. So losing to Cole Schreiber, you know, he's beaten Cole Schreiber many many times. However, in two thousand nine, Cole Schreiber beat him in the fourth round of the French Open, which was after that. Djokovic didn't lose before the second week of a major for like 25 years. You remember that? Like that was a stat that has been spoken of many, many times. Cole Schreiber is out here. He's been out here for, it seems like... Forever. Decades. Still ranked in the top 50. Mm-hmm. A formidable player when he's on, and he was on that day. Djokovic, for his part, it, it makes sense that he would have some rust to his game set aside... The whole ATP politics stuff. It would make sense that in his first tournament since the Australian Open, that if he caught an opponent on his best day, he would get he would have some trouble, and he did. Right. He gave all credit to Cole Schreiber for playing well. He wasn't trying to blame the loss on anything. He did an Instagram live for his fans at the end of the tournament, and said uh, he admitted that he well he said I lost my routine because I engaged with too many things off the court. He didn't get more specific about what those off-court things were. Of course, you can infer what that means. But he said, basically, things that were happening outside of tennis messed with his normal normal routine, his preparation. Whatever that means. Again, something that makes sense. Of course. However you want to infer Mm -hmm. those outside things. (laughs) Right. Because losses like that for Djokovic have been so rare over the past year. Cole Schreiber then went on to lose quite meekly to Gael Monfils, who unfortunately seems to have this Achilles tendon issue. Gael has been playing great all year. His last four tournaments, he made the quarters in Indian Wells before having to withdraw. He came on court and like explained what was going on before his match. He issued a walkover. Uh, he had won a tournament. He'd made a couple of semifinals. This is a consistent... Mofis that we haven't seen ever, really. <laughs> Some credit Jem's life as part of this resurgence mm. because he and Elena are out here going deep into tournaments every week now. They're they're spurring each other on, it would seem. And that match against Cole Schreiber, he beats him 6-love, six 6-2, six and it was the most complete start-to-finish 
relentless assault, consistent, high-level tennis I'd ever seen Mofis play. Mm. And so you watch that and you're like, well, damn. And then unfortunately, he has this injury that he's dealing with. We, we, we talked about the fact that Milos Raonic made the semifinals. A result that it's notable. This is somebody who struggled with injuries for years now. And this result we should not overlook. If he's able to keep his body healthy heading into Wimbledon, this could be something for him to build on. Mm-hmm. Shapovalov as well had a good run at Indian Wells. If we, to, if we were to look at this again from a Canadian perspective. He Are beat, you talking about the rap? <laughs> he beat Chilich. Oh, right. In straight sets. That was a big win for him. Mm-hmm. In his first match, he beat Steve Johnson in straight sets, beats Chilich in straight sets, before losing in three sets to Urkacz. Right. But you're talking about the first thing that comes to your mind is the rap thing. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh, apparently, Dennis was kicking with Blair Henley early in the tournament, and they had come to some agreement that after his next match, he was going to perform a rap on mm-hmm. court. And uh, it, it was memorable for reasons that I don't think he intended. Everybody should have outside interests. I'm glad he, he has something else. It, uh, it, yeah, it was something. Sure was. I think you told me, I think I could have done a better job. And I think I have. You've rapped before? Why have I not seen no, this? No, I think I have done a better job in karaoke. Rapping? Yeah, of course. To do up that thing oh, by okay. Lauren Hill. I know all the but, words. But you didn't have to script a rap and perform it after a match. That's true. He should have used Cardi's Ghostwriter. <laughs> I mean, it's that, it's that simple. I don't know how much it costs, but... There was a huge issue this week with this ongoing bother with the ATP and its profiling and policing of social media with respect to GIF proliferation mm-hmm. and coverage of of these matches by online personalities. Yeah, so videos and GIFs or GIFs of ATP matches in particular. And we know that both leagues, the WTA and the ATP, employ uh, services to sort of scour social media for copyrights and, and to remove those. That's typical across a lot of industries, but these bots have gotten like totally out of control over the past few weeks. The ATP even supposedly they relented and they set up kind of a, a compromise saying, you know, as long as you credit, you can issue this many gifts per day because we understand that you're promoting the sport but you can't do too much. Mm-hmm. And several people who have been trying to follow those rules but have also been vocal about this problem were suspended from Twitter. And the thing is, this in this day and age, somebody's Twitter profile is not always just for fun, right? Like, it can actually be a real thing that they've spent years to build up. It can be valuable, literally. Yeah. Um, and... For people who make these gifts, it's a lot of work, and it promotes the sport in a way that I think maybe the ATP is not prepared for and is not aware of. They obviously don't feel that it generates enough value for them. In my opinion, the ATP is draconian in its media policy, and it's gotten even more so over the past year. But, you know, it's their product. It's their right to do what they want with it. But you have to wonder, is this doing anything to promote the sport which is what we want which i'm sure is what the atp wants is to make the sport and make the product more visible more accessible and is the gif usage preventing not just preventing but dissuading people from watching matches live well that's the thing right that like, that's clearly not the case do people say oh well i don't have to watch that match because i saw that one second gif from the match like That is clearly not all you need to know about it. What it's doing is getting the profile of the sport out there. And we know that there are a lot of players who are obsessed with their image, who love to have any kind of positive promotion (laughs) that they can get. So if you get a star using a GIF of their own match and the ATP said, no, that's mine, that might become an issue. And then you also have tournaments. This was floating around Twitter today that apparently the Monte Carlo tournament had language online when you were going to buy tickets that cell phones were not going to be allowed in matches. 
so spectators were not going to be allowed to use their phones during matches, which is clearly an attempt to crack down on these courtsiders, these people who work for betting companies, who transmit real-time data about matches to the betting service, so people can bet on all these different metrics in tennis matches. So, you know, it, in a matter of seconds, it's important to be first with those that sort of data. That is obviously a problem for tennis tournaments. How can you possibly enforce cell phone usage in a stadium? I just like, don't know. You can't enforce it in a school, in a high school. Like, teachers can't even take away phones from kids. This, to me, is... I, I don't understand really how it would work, like, in a real-life situation. Because, you know, you've been to the Toronto Masters. A lot of the volunteers are, like, 75-year-old women. Are they going to go up to someone and take their phone? No, it's just not going to happen. And it's it's uh, it's just not reasonable to put that burden on them. No, and to to have somebody then responsible for confiscating property that's worth hundreds of dollars, mm. try it. Like, this is just a, a legal issue waiting to happen. I understand these leagues and organizations wanting to protect their products that they invest money in, but, like, guys, this is 2019. I know just how much you love Indian Wells, so I prepared a quiz for you on Indian Wells. Oh, really? Oh, that's really cute. Wow, that's so funny. <laughs> well, get, get on with it. There's 10 questions. Question number one, Naomi Osaka won Indian Wells, then the U.S. Open in the same year. Since the women started playing in 1989, the men were playing that tournament in, since 1974, Six women have completed the Dublin the same year, mm. winning Indian Wells and U.S. Open. Name three other yeah. than Naomi. Okay, well, I know Serena did it in 1999. Yes. Um, I, I feel like Venus did it, maybe? That's incorrect. Oh, shit. Venus was... has never won Indian Wells. Oh, my God. Can you delete that? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, probably Steffi Graf. Correct. And maybe, um, well, probably Monica Sellis. Yes, but you do get only That's credit. That's a pretty easy. You get credit for two of three. Ugh, ugh, the easy ones. In 1992, Sellis did it. 96, Graf. 99, Serena. 05, Kim Clijsters. And then in 2006, Maria Sharapova. Oh, my God. I should have. Oh, my God. Clijsters, of course. I was such a fan at the time. And she came back from that wrist injury. Five... Three, three, two, one. Match these players with the number of times they won Indian Wells. Oh my god. The players are Nadal, Djokovic, Agassi, Sampras, and Michael Chang. Okay. So I know that Nadal is three. Correct. Djokovic is five. Uh-huh. I want to say Chang is probably one. I'm not telling you anymore you, oh, until you shit. say the, the last okay. three. Then Agassi, three, and Sampras, two. Sampras is correct. Michael Chang won it three times, and three Agassi times? only won it once. Damn. I believe Agassi made four finals and lost three times. Mm. Question number three. These women are all Indian Wells champions except for one. Who is the player who's never won Indian Wells? Simona Halep? Svetlana Kuznetsova, Daniela Hentikova, Flavia Panetta, and Yelena Yankovic. Uh, Simona Halep. That is incorrect. <laughs> okay, this is, this is so rude because you know I do not pay attention to this tournament. <laughs> Sveta is the one who's never won okay. it. She lost that three-set final. It was final. between those two. She had that tough three-set final loss to Vesnina a couple years ago. Oh, right. Nine women have won Indian Wells twice. The record for the most titles at the event. Mm. Name five. Name five of them who have won it twice? Five of the nine women who've won Indian Wells twice. Okay. Keep in mind that the women started playing in Indian Wells in 1989. Okay. Uh, Kleisters, Davenport, Sharapova, um, oh, Hantukova. I know she won twice. I have to name five? Yes. And... Oh, and Serena. Correct. All f I got all five? You got all five. Oh. Do you want to hazard a guess as to the other four? Um, no. Mary Pierce. <laughs> okay, let's stop there. 
Navratilova, Marjo Fernandez, Steffi Graf, and Vika. Okay. So you get a, a full mark for that All one. All right. Question number five. Between the ATP and WTA, the BNP Paribas Open has had many names over the years. Mm-hmm. Name one other name for oh, the tournament. Oh, uh, the Pacific Life Open. Correct. Without whale. That was the name of the tournament from 2002 to 2008. It was also the Pilot Pen Classic from 85 to 87 when it was just an ATP event. Mm. It was a State Farm, well, before that, the Everett Cup in 1994. And then from 95 to 98, it was a State Farm Everett Cup. Mm -hmm. And then again in 99, it went back to the Everett Cup. Everett? As in? As in Chrissy Everett. Jimmy and Chrissy Everett? (laughs) I mean her dad. Jimmy oh, okay. Not, that's not what not I thought. Not Jimmy Connors. That's not what I thought. <laughs> wow, those were dark times indeed. Prior to 1987, the tournament wasn't always held in Indian Wells. Name one other location that hosted the event. It wasn't always held in Indian Wells? Correct. Prior to when? 1987. Um, I don't know. Los Angeles? Incorrect. <laughs> the other options were Tucson, which is Arizona, right? I know where that is, yes. Palm Springs... Rancho Mirage. Palms, oh my god, Palm Springs is like basically Indian I'm Wells. just saying this is not what Wikipedia says. Okay. Rancho Mirage and then La Quinta. Or do you say La Quinta in America? I think you should pronounce it according to your Spanish education. <laughs> when Serena Williams won Indian Wells in 1999, it was the second, third, or fourth title of her career. It was the second. Correct. What was her first? Um, I think it was like... It was... Uh, in France. It was yeah. Paris? Yes, correct. Mm. Who did she beat in that final? In, wait, in 1999 Indian, Indian Wells. Wells. Oh, Steffi Graf. See, I gave you an easy one. Yes, it was it was a Federer defeat Sampras moment. What player had the misfortune of playing Kleisters and Enna in three successive finals between mm. 03 and 05? Lindsay Davenport. Losing all three finals. Lindsay Davenport. Correct. I knew that. Those were the days on the WTA. Really. Why? It's just amazing matchups. Constantly. <laughs> I was just wondering if there was something shady. No, no, there. I okay. really liked Lindsay as a player. I really did. Number ten. Of these players, who actually won Indian Wells? Dementieva, Radvanska, Zvonareva, Bartoli, Conchita Martinez. Hmm. I really don't know. Um Let's just say Zvonareva. That is correct. Oh, okay. Cool. What year was that? Don't ask me that. Oh. <laughs> so you get a cool 75% on a quiz about a tournament mm-hmm. you don't care about. I, I'm really happy with Reflect that. Reflect on that for a minute. What does that say about you? <laughs> I would rather not. Miami has started. You know, life goes on. Miami is nice, so you shall say it thrice. Name that tune. <laughs> Miami is nice. Miami is nice. <laughs> We're not going to tell you. If you listen to this show like, and you know where that's from, that. then tell us. Hit us up. Tell us what that's about. You have a couple of corrections to send out. Yes, and they're both mine. Yeah, none both of them. My, my F-ups. I think there were like four of them, but you only remember two oh, at this point. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I made a few mistakes. And while we may not be journalists, we are committed to telling the truth. On this podcast. Or as close an approximation of it yes. as we can. So that horrible racist cartoon of Serena Williams did not appear in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is a very respected publication. It appeared in the Herald Sun, which is based in Melbourne and is a Murdoch-owned paper. So I am very sorry to the Sydney Morning Herald. Terrible. Um, and also, the Inglot brother who's on the ATV board is not Dom, it's Alex. So Alex is Dom's brother. Alex went to Oxford Law School. Very accomplished guy. He's the one who worked, <laughs> worked for the sport data company that, uh, you know, sends data to betting companies. So there's that. Mm. But I was wrong on both counts. So this is the correction appended. Before we end the show, we want to send a special shout out to Maxi257 who wrote a review for us on iTunes that was quite touching. It was really encouraging because we've we've been doing this for four years 
and you wonder like is it getting stale are we getting lazy uh and we were very encouraged by the review because we're I, I we're at least doing some things right still for some people <laughs> <laughs> you can't please everybody all uh-huh. the time no but you can well i don't remember how that goes the haters are just gonna hate and the lovers we love it when you love I don't know that was. Is that like a Taylor Swift song or something? Because <laughs> that I will not abide on this podcast. On that note, thanks for listening to episode 152. She the North. Her name is Bianca Andrescu, commonly known as BB to most, but not me apparently. <laughs> Big up to Dominic Team. Huge win for his career going forward. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at The Body Serve on Twitter as well as Instagram. As always, if you like the show, let everybody else know about it. Tweet us out to other folks. Word of mouth, you know, people still use telephones. When you meet up with your friends in public, I don't know how this how this works. They don't. <laughs> but most importantly, on iTunes, hit us up with a review there. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.